Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we are joined by fellow scholar in the budding, nay, blossoming field of Taylor Swiftian scholarship and its intersection with Thomistic thought. Welcome, Brother Charles Rooney. Great to be with you. Thank you very much. So, of course, we have to dig into what everybody has been waiting for, and that is our explanation of what Taylor Swift has actually been saying. Because although some people think it might be trashy pop, some people may be wrong. It might instead be brilliant philosophy. So um, if you could enlighten us with that, I think the listeners would much appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I'd say so. Taylor Swift, uh, profound observer, we could say, of reality in some respects, and um, yet barely scratching the surface, barely scratching the surface in others. I think in what, I mean, so all this is a genesis of, a, of an, an article I wrote, which came across, which really began with a, um, a prior who's a, who's a chaplain at Providence College who mentioned that he preached a homily once on Taylor Swift's karma. And I don't listen to Taylor Swift too much, so I couldn't have said or couldn't, couldn't have known what that was. Uh, and he said, but he basically connected karma and divine providence and mercy and said that someone who believes in karma and entrusts his or her life to karma becomes a person of vengeance, of revenge but someone who entrusts oneself to divine providence becomes a, a person of mercy. And I thought that was epic an excellent homily, obviously for a, for a college congregation, but all the more it's, it's metaphysically and, and ultimately theologically true. And it's, it's only the kind of thing that I think someone who's a close student of St. Thomas would kind of consider or, or, or arrive at because, well, just in, if you think of the way the prima parts is structured, like you go straight from, from, from God's, God's, God's will to God's love, to God's justice and mercy, then to providence and predestination. And so you see how closely these things are all contained within God. Um, and so then, well, what it, it yields, uh, it yields reflections on when someone is gesturing to or grasping at karma as a kind of principle for a life philosophy, what are you actually looking for more deeply, which is a, but a sense for a meaning, an ultimate meaning for existence, uh, an ultimate cosmic justice. Um, and then please God, something that, you know, a, that, that, that justice being applied to your own life, uh, both justly and also mercifully, because, you know, everyone has knowledge of his, his or her own faults. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was struck by that. And then someone proposed to me or mentioned anti-hero, which is kind of another pole of the spiritual life, uh, because the, the whole song is a confession of everything that's wrong with you. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, well, maybe there's actually interestingly a kind of dialectic going on between these two songs uh is, is is taylor swift in fact the hegelian well i mean she lives in the hegelian world so it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me um and of course albums don't really have a kind of meta coherence at least in the modern in the modern sense i don't think too much um or in the modern con yeah contemporary context too much so each 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 song is kind of like its own um story like personal story that kind of kind of stand alone Car or anti-hero is a single of course and i thought oh my gosh these these songs are quite contradictory like karma is is lambasting this guy you know it's it's a breakup song a song of the, the um whereas anti-hero is clearly like a confession of basically all the things that she critiques in in karma and i thought oh my gosh well we have something here about like again to that father's point providence and mercy, um, but also one's own deep need for mercy. And so let, let me let me try and draw this out in, a, in an article. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, I certainly support exactly this venture, not only because I also have a podcast on karma, but because we just did one on the story of Jacob and Esau. And mm. one of the points that is being yeah. made is that there's this uh, very worldly man, Esau, somebody who's just naturally fit for just going out in the world. He's, he's uh, covered in hair. He's a man of the field. Then we have Jacob, who's just deeply embedded in the tents, in civilization, in community. And tradition tells us that he was a thinker. He was, I don't know, he, he was the ivory tower type. He wasn't the one to, to go out into the world, to go and plunge himself into the chaos there. But in the end, we find that what Jacob has to do is to put on the clothes, put on the garments of Esau to take that on himself and then to take on the role of the firstborn to go out into the world like Esau was doing all along. However, to transform it in a way which is in line with uh, God's truth. So this kind of endeavor, 
I see as the fusion of the, the Jacob and Esau story, where people who know Thomas Aquinas don't just stay off in the ivory tower, but instead say, all right, where's the world at? Where's the messy, confusing, sometimes contradictory world of pop music? I'm going to dress myself in some goat skins and we're going to roll right in there and we're going to speak with the voice of Jacob. We're going to speak with the voice of Thomas Aquinas, the history of, of our civilization into the world. I think that that's, that's how the world gets transformed. Amen. I mean, that's that's the that's the that's the Dominican vocation, which is to look at God, to contemplate God, and then to view all reality in His light. And uh, in as much as anyone and everyone is living in reality, uh, like you can't escape reality. You can never step out of the eternal law. Like and as much as you exist, you're living. You're in being. You're living in reality. And it, it, particularly, someone is talented. Like Taylor Swift is remarkably talented. I mean, it's 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 just, it's stunning. And she's clever and she's insightful. Um, but she's but her, her view is not is not full. It's not full. First off, she's not living in the light of faith, but also <laughs> I wouldn't go to her for metaphysical science or any <laughs> any of the other uh, any of the other we could say first first philosophical sciences um, for, for, for for insight on, on that account. But but she is seeing things and she does have a real experience and she has a clever way of, of putting that putting it in words and and those words to catchy tune. And so yeah, in karma, in antihero, like she's pointing at real things that we desire, we do desire a kind of revenge or cosmic justice. And we do recognize uh, profound shortcomings in ourselves and in others. And we want to make sense of these things. Um, and in this sense, I mean, it, yeah, ultimately, you know, to cut to cut the Gordian knock, so to speak, um, what you need, you need the you need the rider uh, with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the one who's faithful and true, who's, who's king of kings. Ooh. And he, because he can slice it, and he does. Um, and ultimately, what is the not? But it's it's original sin and an actual sin within us, and a world that is profoundly damaged by that. Um, and so I I look at someone like Taylor Swift, and I think of uh, you know these two songs and their kind of dialectical um, tension, which is resolved ultimately. I mean, if you want to think of what is the synthesis, well, the synthesis just would be the truth, and that would be the truth of God's providence and God's mercy that. That he is in charge, um, that his justice endures forever, and also his merciful love endures forever. And so that's why, like when I when, I, when you come across the line in um, Antihero, where she says, "I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror," I just like that 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 line kind of wrenches my own heart because I think she's just spent verse after verse kind of confessing her faults, uh, mm -hmm. and then she can't actually look herself in the mirror at them and come to terms with with who she really, who she really is in all of her weakness, um, which is still as one created in, created by God out of love and redeemed by God in Christ out of love and out of love and called, called into a life of real holiness. Um, but if you can't, if you can't face the truth about yourself and you constantly think like, well, I'm just keeping my side of the street clean always, but, but no one's stride of the street is actually such um, in at the end of the day before the Lord. And Thus we bow before his mercy. So it's um, so I, I saw all these things and I thought, man, yeah, there's uh, she's gesturing. I called her a Thomistic a commentator on on St. Thomas's teaching of divine mercy. Obviously, I'm not sure uh, I put her up there with you know Cajun Capriolis, John of St. Thomas, and so forth. It's funny at the House of Studies here we have in our in, a, um, in the Pontifical Faculty or our school. There's we have images of uh, or paintings of uh, various commentators. So Capriolis. Cajetan, John of St. Thomas, uh, and so forth, and, and even um, Marie-Joseph Lagrange, Gary Lagrange, certainly, but also the other Lagrange. Uh, and if one could ask, well, are we going to have a portrait of Taylor Swift now, you know, put up? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, but she's, 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 but in as much as she's pointing to the truth, she's pointing to, to being, to something that's real. Um, she has something to say, and someone with a higher light, you know, can look at that and, uh, and try to elucidate it in, in, in the full word of wisdom. This is why I love Dominicans. Also, I'm going to steal that entire cutting the Gordian knot thing. That's much better than the way I explain it. <laughs> Which is how? I don't even know. I'm on the spot now. Okay. Uh, but that's better. <laughs> that's my new way. So I'll just, I'll just default back to that. Yeah, what you're describing here is, yeah, there's definitely a real tension between karma and antihero. And I think that really describes the way that the world is today, where we see on one hand, people are depressed. People are self loathing self-harming uh, and then they come out in society 
bursting forth saying, except everything about me, I am beautiful. Body positivity, uh, positivity about every choice that they could possibly make and the yeah. panoply of bad choices which are offered to them. And it's this, it's this whiplash that I'm awesome. Everything I do is right. And also, I'm really terrible and I'm not happy. It's this awful modern whiplash, which I think comes straight from the fact that she won't ever look at herself in the mirror, which means she won't come to that center point, which is the truth, which ultimately says she's, well, I hate to say anything bad about Tay. Maybe she's just describing people who may be lacking in the virtue of humility. Mm. Um, because that lack of humility explains both songs and explains them well. Um, also explains why she can't look at herself. So I think if she had a little bit more of that, um, she'd be a little bit more psychologically, philosophically, and probably spiritually healthy. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, because when she says it must be exhausting rooting for the anti-hero, I mean, it's exhausting to live a life like that constantly with cultivating a kind of revenge, trusting in the um, caprice of karma, because karma is very capricious. You know, you're either on its side or you're not. Um, and then, And then also looking and recognizing one's weaknesses, but not knowing what to do to do about them and that's why I, the truth is in the middle because yeah yes there are injustices that happen that we suffer we have a desire for real for real justice or vindication and ultimately ultimately in most cases it's not for us to to affect it's it's something that god will do um in in all eternity in his in his goodness and and providence um but another and then on the other hand in looking at one's weakness it's oh i bow before god's mercy and 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 i'm, and I'm a recipient of it, um, which enables you to live in a profound kind of freedom and confidence. Because that's the thing is you become way less vindictive when you when one realizes how much one has actually, in fact, been forgiven. Oh, definitely. And not just, I mean, yes, forgiven is enough on, on its own, but valuing the gift of existence itself, I think, is an incredible, incredible, just, just mental ex exercise, at very least, mm. thinking like, uh, I think I've given the example before, if I woke up and I didn't have thumbs, how much would I pay? How much would I work? What would I sacrifice to get my thumbs back? Oh, my word, an enormous amount. How much would somebody have to offer you to take your thumbs away? For me, it'd have to be like, I don't know, ballparking $2 million, $3 million to take my thumbs. Uh, and then you extend that to, and then my feet. And then my ability to feel pain. Then my ability to feel love my yeah. ability to remember you go through just make a mental inventory of all of the things which you have and what you would do to keep them the sum of all that is somewhere an approximation of the gift of being that god gave you and that outweighs so much just from the onset yeah i mean it's ultimately an infinite gift you know it's something mm -hmm. you can't and it's something you can't repay um so something which you must receive and then live in the light of, uh, which is hard to do because, well, because fallen man is weak and, and, um, and the fallen world makes, makes things difficult and confusing. And I think that's, well, that's what, I mean, it's, it's hard. Like reality is profoundly intelligible. And I go to the wall for natural reason and its capacity to know, to know the order of things, to know nature's and, and know natural lens. Um, but, but uh, it's also, there's also a deep kind of confusion and absurdity in existence because of the introduction of sin. And mm -hmm. so things, things are not as they seem, you know, like John Henry Newman would speak of original sin as quote, an aboriginal calamity, which is a nice, you know, classic Newman turn of phrase, but it's, it's what it is. You, you look out and you see so much order and so much beauty, natural beauty. You see beauty in human actions. You see remarkably virtuous people, but then there's this, it's all kind of, there's contaminated by a tinge of disorder, of privation, of evil, of, of unintelligibility. And actually coming to reckon with that and to find a solution to it is it i mean f f this is why we need divine revelation ultimately um not just like to help us with natural things but actually to resolve to cut the gordian knot and that's what that's what divine grace ultimately does yeah you know it's yeah evil has a type of absurdity and the other thing i can think of that has a type of absurdity is humor mm -hmm. and often when we encounter evil our first thought is, oh, I could be angry or I could despair 
I could just jettison the virtue of hope. And none of those are really terribly helpful. I think in the end, the best approach is not to dismiss evil at all, but to laugh at it, to realize and to laugh, meaning that we understand the ultimate victory. And in light of that, we can just be content and say, yeah, this is absurd. And God's got it under control that we don't have to actually have our peace harmed by these things. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be active. We should be extraordinarily active, but we should be active in a spirit of joy and not despair and anguish and worry. Absolutely. Yeah. We are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song. Uh, John Paul would, I mean, frequently herald that, that, uh, that classic line of St. Augustine. And I mean, there are other great patristic images of, of God basically duping the devil, you know, playing the, playing the devil, uh, mm-hmm. boy against him. Um, in the incarnation and even more in the passion, death, and resurrection, uh, which is to say then, not, or which would be to say that there's a sense in which the the life and death, the, the redemption we find in Christ is, um, well, a joke that God plays against the devil, a profoundly serious one, mm-hmm. um, because he inverts all of the absurdity of uh, of evil um, and, and brings it into, well, what, a higher a redemptive light. Suffering now is no longer absurd, but but uh, the means of our salvation, like that's, that's deep, you know, and, that, and, and talk about um, a way of turning, the, I mean, literally turning the devil on his head, like, what does the devil want to do, but introduce privations, suffering, difficulty, disorder, and Christ enters into the very core, like the very depths of that uh, at its root, and, and defeats it. Um, and that's humorous, in a sense, because, well, uh, the devil's greatest tool has been used against him kind of reminds me of the passage with the pearl of great price. There's a number of ways to read that. But the reading I like is that um, Jesus knows there's the pearl of great price in the field and the devil doesn't. And he says, oh, I'll pay, pay for the field. You know, you can, you can have me at the crucifixion. And he thinks overpaid like crazy. I duped him. And then it shows up. Oh, actually, I had this giant treasure in the field. It's buried treasure all along. And that you, were actually shorted. You were gypped. You were you were swindled instead. Yeah, I mean, um, though that's and I'd like that's it. I mean, one of the uh, one of the I think this is Gregory of Nyssa uh, who who speaks of um, basically Christ. So Christ's humanity is like the bait on the hook of his of his divinity, and he he, he 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 goads the sea monster devil into chomping on chomping on the hook and then and thus getting caught and defeated because of course the the uh, humanity is the instrument of the divinity in in the defeat of the devil and and then uh i think it's john damascene who who takes us to another level and and connects that to psalm 22 i am a worm and no man um <laughs> which is just which is just epic it's this is the father's having obviously having a lot of fun uh which is what you have to do i mean, you have to do in, in a contemporary just in life but in a contemplative life as a man who just came back from a deep sea fishing trip, as I mentioned before the interview, I get that. Yes. That's it. That's it. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, all the sea monsters, Leviathan and, and so forth. Goodbye. Indeed. Well, I feel like this is a decent place to uh, transfer on into some uh, Thomistic personalism, if you're ready. Sure. I, I would give a, a very brief story. I uh, have a good friend, Tom. He was my sponsor when I was coming into the church. And he bumped into what can only be described as a gang of Thomists. Mm. And I, th- I think that's the, the, the term for a group of them, like a murder of cl- crows. And, a pride. Oh, oh, a pride. A pride of Thomists. A maybe. pride of <laughs> One would hope not. A humility of Thomists. <laughs> there you go. A pious of Thomists. And uh, so they bumped into these guys. He is a, a sculptor and an incredible one at that. So he has more of the phenomenology, a JP2 kind of perspective mm. on things. And they were more curmudgeonly, hardcore, objectivist Thomists. And uh, in conversation with them, he's like, whoa, am I wrong about this? Am I missing something? Should I not be, be following that other kind of strain of the tradition? And uh, talking to, to me, I'm like, no, well, I, I think that I even have a guest who brings these things into synthesis and is over there so he could beat them up. And that's you. So okay. um, <laughs> what do you, what do you have to say about the, uh, what is Thomistic personalism? What, what, what's it trying to solve here? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the, so I think first off, this is, this is a, the segue from Taylor Swift to Thomistic personalism is excellent because what we've just done in talking about Taylor Swift is applied Thomistic principles 
metaphysics and and metaphysics applied to, to divine revelation to like the particularities of the, the human desire for revenge for justification uh for a sense of meaning to one's existence and also the the kind of yeah um angst or, or self-loathing that that particularly preoccupies uh postmodern or contemporary man and uh i say that because Thomistic personalism really originates with with St. John Paul II, Karapoitiwa. Uh, um, he names it such in, in a 1961 lecture that he gave in in, um, in Poland, I think it was in Lublin, uh, and at a philosophy conference. And his goal, I mean, John Paul II is a man, of course, deeply, he's a deeply artistic man, uh, a poet, a, you know, um, a playwright, an actor himself. Uh, but he always says, it's, it's really to a T, really, he says that when he first read is when he had read his first metaphysical man, metaphysics manual in seminary, he was doing this particularly like when he's working at the Solvay chemical factory during uh, the, the Nazi period, um, he, when he entered seminary, he, he was stunned by the kind of precision and depth which metaphysics, the philosophy of being gave him beyond the kind of, uh, we could say re relational or, or um, phenomenological intuitions or uh, sort of me method you might, might've said he stumbled upon just by virtue of his experience in the arts and he always appreciated the kind of purchase the epistemic purchase that metaphysics gives one on on reality on being um but he nevertheless continued to study to study phenomenology um i mean he, he wrote his, his second his second doctoral thesis on max Scheler, evaluation of max Scheler's account of ethics and, and a hierarchy of values and so forth um and he was i think because he's i mean he's such an integrated man and he feel he felt so deeply um that he, he always had a deep and a profound sense for uh, how the human being experiences life, experiences existence, experiences good and evil, and as particularly in the realm of the theater of human action. So I say all this really to bring to the one conclusion, which is that Thomistic personalism, as John Paul II conceives of it, is, uh, is not really a metaphysics. It's not a systematic speculative philosophy. It's not a science of the human person. He speaks of it particularly as a practical or an ethical philosophy. Um, I think one might, and it's never really completed. He never really completed it. Uh, it's also not something which I suppose one could complete if you're not interested in a science of the human person. So what it, what it then seems to amount to is more uh, reflections or specifications of Thomistic metaphysics in the realm of human experience and human action, uh, oftentimes used or employing, we could say, the vocabulary of phenomenology or of, of yeah, of experience. Okay, so it, it I, I don't think it necessarily, I mean, there are those who may imply that it's breaking from the tradition. I assume you wouldn't say that this is like a, a, a snap at all. So it, it seems to be just like a parallel line of thought, also thinking about the human person. Yeah, in a way, I mean, I would distinguish it so definitely from, say, like the Thomistic commendatorial tradition. So, I, you know, we were talking earlier about the the um, portraits that are on our walls here at Thassa Studies with uh, with Capriolis and Cajetan and, and and Domingo Banez and John of St. Thomas and the like. And and each of these each of these men, these Dominican commentators, is take trying to take what their goal is to read St. Thomas to take his metaphysical metaphysical principles, and then both and reach deeper conclusions in light of contemporary issues and. So, of the Thomistic commentatorial tradition as deepening St. Thomas both extensively, applying them to new things, and intensively reaching greater preci precision with respect to old or new things. And so this is, that's a speculative project, principally. It's a project in trying to attain a deeper, more sapiential gaze upon God and all being in light of him. Thomistic personalism is, is a much more practical endeavor. It also, I think, needs to be understood in light of the origins of personalism more broadly, which is coming out of, I mean, it's especially a post-World War II kind of philosophical movement, which is, okay, you know, we just had the Holocaust, Europe is destroyed. What do we make of, what do we make of reality? What do we make of life? So it's a very, you know, it's, it's situ situationalized. You can already kind of see their, um, well, like Hegelian historicizing elements here of just, okay, I'm, um, I'm in the midst of, or we're in the midst of this like epic situation of evil and what's kind of the next movement that's going to, so to speak, respond to our situation. Uh, whereas a more sapiential, you could say like, I mean, you could say more Thomist view would be, um, no, like reality being is ultimately unchanging. And so the perennial principles are significant and applicable in every context. 
Um, so we're not we're not kind of in a dialectical en engagement or battle with the the most recent historical um, cataclysm, but are, we're we're interested in in specifying eternal truths to particular particular questions, particular problems, not kind of conceiving a whole sort of new thing. So in this in this respect, um, personalism it's it's like you can't really speak of personalism as a unified the uh, philosophy. I mean, you've got like Jacques Maritain is like one brand of personalism he tries to do his kind of own Thomistic personalism thing, but but he does go up and he tweaks he tweaks the metaphysics. Um, I can get get into that in a little bit. And then you have like Emmanuel Mounier who's doing his another, another kind of thing, more existentialist. Um, some people would consider like Jean-Paul Sartre or maybe Albert Camus as as kinds of personalists, um, in as much as they're reflecting on the practical practical nature of of or the practical dimension of human experience. But of course, like if you're an existentialist. By definition, you you cut yourself off from metaphysics. You deny the reality of human nature. It's, it becomes a kind of nominalistic thing, um, and it ultimately leads to you know an absurdity or or a kind of attempt to recover meaning in, in nihilism. And you have a Martin Buber sort of thing too, which would be a focus on the I, thou, the intersubjectivity, um, the difference between knowing knowing an it and knowing a thou. And so again, what we get back to is just a focus really in light of the Second World War on the dignity of the human person. And St. John Paul, from, from the beginning, so I'd say from the beginning, like from the beginning of his seminary studies to the end, and when I say the end, I mean like literally the end. If you, um, if you read Memory and Identity, which was a text, it was kind of his final papal memoirs published in 2005, like um, two months before he died. He says really um, incisively that if we wish to speak rationally about good and evil, we have to return to St. Thomas Aquinas, that is to the philosophy of being. With the phenomenolog phenomenological method, yes, this is, we can study experiences of morality, religion, or, or what it is to be human, and you get a kind of enrichment. But all of these things presuppose the reality of the absolute being, and thus the reality of being human and of being a creature. So the point is that St. Pervoiti was St. John Paul II sees personalism um, as a way of basically reflecting upon the subjective dimension of the metaphysical uh, corpus or like system, you could say, um, metaphysical habitus of, of St. Thomas. So hot take here, or maybe more than one hot take, one of which is the way that you describe that and having those multiple pieces of the puzzle found in Thomistic personalism or personalism in general, to me, yeah. that just seems to be... Uh, plain old necessary to affirm the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, because we have on one side that objective idea that there is partaking in the one divine essence. There is one, uh, one existence that we are talking about. So in that sense, they are one. But if you only had that objective kind of, kind of mindset, then your understanding of the personal nature of the three distinct persons could be lacking. I'm not saying that the traditional Thomistic account isn't adequate. It is. Mm. But if anything, I'm saying that the tr traditional Thomistic account implies a type of personalism that gives a reality to that subjective nature of a distinct person. Because if it didn't, it would collapse into a single person of the Godhead. But that's not something that we know from Revelation. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think basically, I think St. Thomas, and I say this after having, um, so my interest in Thomistic personalism, person, like personally, uh, if you will, um, arose in, in college and, and in a, in a one-year uh, MA in philosophy that I did before entering the order. And now having, you know, spent five years um, really just immersed in, in St. Thomas, I've, I've come to think that the I'm not, I'm not sure that necessarily the critique of St. Thomas totally holds up um, ultimately. And the reason is that St. Thomas is just remark remarkably comprehensive in his mm -hmm. reality mm -hmm. and a human person. And I think if one real, and, and, you know, it's tough because people who were reading St. Thomas perhaps in mid 20th century, early 20th century, particularly in a seminary context, would not typically have been reading the Summa Theologiae like itself. Um, and so they, would have gotten him piecemeal through manuals and in their treatise in their anthropology class they would have really strictly just gotten like a treatment of probably question 76 to 89 on on just the nature of the nature of man um without kind of seeing its full extension i mean 76 to 89 is basically and then you could take that up into roughly to question like 99 when talking about image of god and its implications creation of the first man 
in the Prima Pars, all that is like a launch pad for the entire Secunda Pars. I mean, you could basically say 76 to 89 looks at man or up to 93, 94 on image of God looks at man in first act in his being. And then question one of the Prima Secundae to basically question 189 in the Secunda Secundae is looking at man in operation, what a mm-hmm. human action is, what the human passions are, what, uh, what habits and virtues and vices are, how these things inhere in us, um, what law and grace are. And then, of course, he goes through all the particular virtues. And so I think basically what Thomistic personalism is trying to do without actually doing it, um, and I say without actually doing it because I'm not sure it's a project that's really ever reached maturity. Um, and and the question, one could ask, you know, which, what's, what's the adjective and what's the noun here? I mean, so are we, are we principally personalists, which, which would then mean that you're a practical philosopher. You're not because personalism is by virtue, by nature, a practical philosophy responding to an existential situation after the second world war and so forth and using Thomistic metaphysics as the boundary or the, um, that within which you do your personalism, or are we Thomists um, primarily who seek a kind of personalistic integration? And what I would mean by that is really just an integration between speculative and practical. Um, between knowing the order of being and living well within the order of being. And I think what Thomistic personalism is after is basically an integration of the prima pars and the secunda pars of the Summa Theologiae. Um, and I think when one actually studies St. Thomas in full, which, I mean, this, this is, again, this is in part unique to the Dominican charism. Like we, we have a kind of time in our formation for, for the priesthood uh, to just to spend seven, seven years, you know, going through the entirety of the Summa and, and then thinking about related questions, um, both contemporary and, and perennial. And one sees the unity that there's just there's just no disjunction in between for St. Thomas between the objective and the subjective. Certainly, mm-hmm. he's he's not speaking in in the kind of existential register of 20th century philosophy. That's not his language. I would grant that any day of the week. But I think when you when you when you when you read him and you I mean to give two concrete examples, one uh, his treatment on on the passion of sorrow and remedies of sorrow. This is um, right in the middle of the treatise on the passions in, in the late 30s of the Prima Secundae. Um, he gives remedies. He gives six, I think it's six remedies for sorrow. And so one of these would be like um, taking a bath. Drinking uh, having, wine. Ha- yeah, or having simple pleasures, right? Drinking wine or mm-hmm. chocolate or sure. whatever it is that you might like. Having a good cry, just kind of letting those humors <laughs> out of you. Um, and then there's, uh, I think it's commiserating about it with your friends. Um, and then ultimately the last one is, uh, so this would be the fifth or the sixth, um, is, is contemplating your situation in light of the full truth about reality, which is so profound. I mean, anyone who's grieving, like you go, th- you could go through each of those steps, you know, um, and or anyone who's just dealing with any kind of sorrow, like to ultimately to contemplate whatever it is that's afflicting you in the light, in the full light of in the full light of being and of God's providence and mercy, to advert to Taylor Swift, was going is going to to quell or to to alleviate that passion. Um, and I think that just indicates that St. Thomas has a deep sense of the subjective interiority of the person, even obviously if he's, it would be anachronistic to, uh, to ask him to be speaking in, you know, the terms of uh, personalism, which are indebted to 19th, uh, 20th century phenomenology. A yeah, second example. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I can, the second example I can defer. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think Taylor Swift does comment on a number of those things. Pretty much all of those are mentioned. For instance, Teardrops in My Guitar uh-huh. um, does talk about the good cry. I think she go. is missing the contemplation of the entire truth. And I think what you're pointing to is a lot of people, when um, examining uh, Thomism, they don't look at the whole truth either. They don't look at the entire right. Summa. Uh, yeah, we, we often want to simplify and pigeonhole philosophers into one place or another. Um, Thomas was a really smart guy. He's not going to miss something as obvious as the, the subjective nature of self. I mean, in fact, I believe he even talks about that with relation to the father in particular. Um, you know, we're imprinted with the image of the Trinity. We have mm. uh, minds which know that relates very well to the Logos. We have wills that can love. That relates pretty well to the Holy Spirit. And then the last one, which I seems to make sense, is the very seat of consciousness itself seems to relate to that eternal mind, the Father himself. Yeah, just the possession. I think it's just the possession of being, just the fact that we have, that we have. Mm-hmm. We're, we are there, not just 
an it is there, but yeah. a we is that there is there, there is a that there is a soul that there is a soul with powers which right. operate. You know, right, and that um, that's the genesis of um, that's the genesis of reason, this genesis of will, this genesis of the rest, not in regard to you know time wise, but with regard to begetting inspiration. So yeah, I don't think that 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 um, Aquinas missed that at all. So I guess we no. could have turned that gang of of Thomists um, towards Thomas Aquinas himself. Yeah, no, I think that's right without question. And I mean, it's Thomas. So and I mean, other treatments of this question of consciousness or of self possession, self awareness, self possession in the Summa. Um, I mean, you get it on his treatment on conscience in question seventy nine of Prima Pars. Uh, just like the, the conscience is set up in three ways. And, and the first way is just an awareness of one's own actions. I mean, part mm -hmm. of like the measure of a, the for, like what makes a human action, human action is that it's, it's a rational act. It's an act proceeding from reason. I mean, this is the difference between like your hair growing and growing your hair out. Right. I mean, one is an, a, a willful act to cultivate a kind of style. Um, and one is aware of oneself. I mean, I'm not aware, aware that my hair is growing at whatever pace it's growing right now, but if I were, you know, growing my hair out into some kind of style. Uh, if I were going for, you know, the Dominican mullet, not a, not a, not a, not, not, not typically a, a hairstyle of the tradition that, you know, the, um, the uh, tonsure is, is more traditional, more traditional in that respect. But if I were, if I were growing out a mullet, I would be, I would be conscious. I would be aware of that. I would have conscientia. I would have, I would be acting with knowledge of my, of my intention there. And thus it would be, you know, a morally specifiable act. Um, and likewise, Later on in, in his treatise on man in uh, in question eighty seven he's talking about like how well the eighty five to eighty nine how does the soul know different things how does the soul know things in general how does it know material things how does it know itself and then how does it know things above itself and so Thomas has a great reflection on we're aware of of that we know we're aware of like the person who has faith you know you have faith you know you you know you have a kind of trust in God that's distinct then from knowing what faith is or knowing what the dynamics of the, of intellect, of the intellect are, or how man knows. So this gets to, I think what can ultimately be a, a helpful distinction again, between like what we could call speculative knowledge, scientia, and then a kind of practical cognition or cognitio, um, mm -hmm. that, which is to say that the site that one who has, and this is why, you know, so if I want to go to Taylor Swift, I'm going to, I'm uh, what, what insights am I looking for from her? I'm, probably looking for co cognitive insights, cognitio, like a sense of human experience and of how she, how she reflects on her human experience, but I'm not going to go to her for metaphysical or certainly theological science because she just she doesn't have that kind of precision, but she's a very perceptive person and she writes cleverly and articulately about her cognitio. And um, she could totally come on the podcast and we could help her out with that. And this does absolutely invite Taylor. If you're listening, we'd love to have you. <laughs> I shouldn't have spoken in the we. It's not my podcast, but <laughs> oh, feel free. No, we agree on how to explain the the cutting the Gordian knot analogy. So there you go. There oh, it by is, the way, man. I am I am going to morally specify the state of a mullet, and that is, it is bad. It is bad. Okay. Okay. Fair. You know, we can. That's that's another podcast. That's um, true. Yes. That is podcast. a whole, maybe a series. And you know, yeah. I'll bring in I, the thinker that I, I that Aquinas brings in all the time. Um, one of our favorites here on the podcast, our favorite, including you, of course, um, is uh, St. Augustine. St. Augustine, okay. I think it's the city of God, goes through great lengths talking about beatitude. What does it mean to actually possess that? And he says that if you, um, it, it, it pulls it into the subjective nature and that you would have to know that it exists and it continues. Otherwise, you can't actually have perfect happiness right. unless you knew that it was forever. Right. So when he's talking about, uh, I think he's uh, discussing the state of uh, uh, state of angels at the beginning, but then he brings it into the human experience and he talks about what we would be like in heaven. And that regards our understanding of self in context of God, in context of others, in context of the future, it implies that unified knowing self. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's and that's where so this the, the unity between the speculative and the cognitio comes in is. We're ultimately talking about talking about like living an integrated life of knowing the order of things and living according to it. And this is this is the great this is the great call. This is the dignity of man's vocation to know to know God and to love God. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, well, so this comes out like a, a kind of helpful example of this. Um, again, to think of Saint Thomas is he'll talk about the distinction between moral science and then con natural knowledge. Perhaps you've heard of this. It comes up especially in. Uh, St. Thomas, the treatment of the gift of wisdom connected to charity. Mm -hmm. 
question 45 of the Sukuna Sukunde. And he um, he makes so he speaks of you can have a moral philosopher with a kind of knowledge of what chastity is. And he can he could break down chastity chastity into all of its parts, contrary vices, things dispositive to it, things anti-dispositive to it, and so forth. But then you have the just connaturally chaste man. So he has this con natural knowledge. It's it's as if it were natural. It's and it, it, this is a knowledge that is principally speaking experiential, or we could think of as in the realm of the cognitio. He just he sees if he sees something that's contrary to chastity, he flees because he knows it's wrong. And he he, mm -hmm. he may even may not be able to explain it to you, but he just knows that's wrong. I shouldn't do that. I I'm, I'm gonna I, I you know goes in flight. And that, um, and what ultimately we're looking for is is a full integration of those two things. And I think that's that's where um, people who see Saint Thomas or read Saint Thomas and say, "Oh, he's just this terribly arid or you know kind of abstract thinker. He's uh, kind of constantly up in this yeah, met, met, arcane metaphysical vocabulary." They forget the fact that um, that Thomas was a Dominican friar who who is who's living who's living a human like life with with fallen men himself being a fallen man and he's himself trying to integrate the speculative truths which he is interested in outlining in the summa into his own very own interior life and it's because of his remarkable excellence in doing that that one he achieves such speculative profundity and incisiveness and also such personal sanctity because the summa is not meant to be a personalistic treatise in a kind of modern sense it's it's a speculative treatise of of theological science but because the person, but when someone studies that and then lives, attempts to live, basically imbibe it and like and incarnate it in one's own life, you see that this this distinction between, um, but the, the distinction between speculative like speculative science and the connatural knowledge, those things are meant to asymptotically converge as you become more and more interiorly integrated, and I think as someone like Saint John Paul II, you see that just with epic profundity um, and 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 excellence. I mean. People who met him, who knew him well, would would say that he frequently say he was he was the most integrated man I've ever met, hmm. because of just the well the depth of his knowledge and the depth of his love, and the unity with which he lived. And so, in that regard, I think you know why would Saint why would John Paul II be interested in Thomistic personalism? Well, because he's a man who appreciates the speculative power of metaphysics, um, but also wants to see its kind of practical specification is practical act uh, realization and he wants to use a kind of language that will be helpful in doing that and that's oftentimes that can be the um the reflective some sort of subject reflection on subjectivity yeah and this uh, commentary on uh what is it first uh, corinthians first corinthians 12 or 13 he specifically makes a distinction between the gift of knowledge and the gift of teaching things which relate to Ciencio and then the mm. gift of wisdom and the ability to teach and impart wisdom so yeah he's absolutely in multiple places making that exact distinction and it's yeah. it's I, I think I've I've leaned a little bit on that concept in an earlier episode talking about what does it mean to have church tradition mm. and in that respect often we hear the Protestant critique of Oh, it's so less scriptural. We just need to find it in the text. But that's denying that there's a distinction between wisdom as it exists in a person, in a body, and wisdom as, as it exists in a page, in a writing. Yeah. And if we affirm the master analogy of the church, that the church is, in fact, the body of Christ, we ought to expect that this type of, of wisdom takes up residence in, in a real living, personal way inside of the body of christ and that relates to the tradition it's not something other than or but it is something extracted from that which we could find in written form yeah no that's exactly right i mean it's it would seem like a kind of controversial hot take to say that the bible itself doesn't save but the bible is a written book it's grace, it's grace it's the word the eternal word who saves the eternal word is mediated through through the church and through her scriptures which of course come after the church um, in their in their composition and promulgation and canonization. So oh, uh, yeah, no, without without yeah, without question, um, without question, that's key. And yeah, I would just say ultimately, like you know, with respect to the question of Thomistic personalism and the place of phenomenological language or like personalistic language reflection. I mean, is it necessary? Um, I think it's I think it's basically dispositive to leading someone to greater scientific precision 
I mean, if you, you know, if you think about, so for instance, I mean, we can say, okay, well, what, what did we learn from thinking about Taylor Swift and the, this uh, apparent tension, the real tension between a desire for karma and justice and a, and a, and a recognition of one's own weakness? Well, okay, so she's speaking in, we could say, personalistic or phenomenal, informally, very popularly kind of a crude, yeah, crude for sure, um, personalistic language, right, in some respect. And what that does, though, is leads, it leads us to, it, so that takes us along the, the via inventionis, the way of discovery, to go back up to speculative principles and to say, well, what's actually really going on, on here underneath the hood? What experience is she describing? She's ex describing an experience of, of a, a desire for divine justice but also a profound need for divine mercy. And where is this most like epically and profound and specifically um, evinced? Well, on the, on the cross, of course. And so now given that kind of reflection on subjectivity, yes, in a crude and, and kind of inchoate way in Taylor Swift's music and maybe a more technical or poetic way in a, in a higher register of personalistic philosophy, one is then led back up to the speculative register to, to clarify exactly how such terms relate speculatively and then how they're integrated practically in, in one's in one's living of the Christian life. You know, some people might think we are, you know, warping what Taylor really means, but I don't think so at all. Where we she might not be a Thomistic philosopher. I don't think either of us are saying that she is. No. But we all have these certain objective human longings that were were placed in each one of us. And those who can express themselves at the highest level, say pop stars, are expressing real human longings, which relate to something. Absolutely. Um, so it, in that respect, what we're talking about is, is completely, <laughs> I'm going to say is completely on target. She yeah. wants to have, um, she wants to have some type of vindication in her life. She wants to see the order of divine justice. She um, also has recognition of self and recognition of how hard it is to truly look at oneself with the uh, uh, rather stare directly in the sun than than in the mirror. I'd rather be destroyed by something yeah. extrinsic than have to be destroyed by the recognition of my intrinsic sin. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather be blind. I'd rather be I'd rather lose my sure. faculty in sight than look Perfect. at myself. Right. I Perfect. mean, that's 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 Perfect. stunning. Um, absolutely stunning. That's not like. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's the, that's quite the opposite. Mm. Basically, the fact that my eye causes me to sin is too much for me. So I'd rather just, you know, lose my faculty of knowing that, um, lose my sight. Yeah. So it's I, without question. And I, this is this is the great. Uh, I mean, in my own experience, the great um, just pastoral uh, use uh, usefulness uh, efficacy of of Saint Thomas and having a kind of having a deep immersion. In, in studying St. Thomas, which is, of course, I mean, specifically proper to uh, the Dominican order and our charism. Thomas is our older brother. Um, you know, he's, 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 uh, yeah, he, he's, he lived our life and the Summa is a fruit of living, living this life, but also for, for anyone, um, anyone who, anyone on any day of the week and at any point of the year, like who, who goes and reads St. Thomas and gleans an insight about reality uh, now has, now has something to say, um, which can be of use to, to their own soul. It's again, the unity of the speculative and the practical of going from the scientia to the, to the cognitio or the, the connatural knowledge. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 and, and it, you, so you can, you can listen to a song, a pop song and all of a sudden elucidate from it, like deep metaphysical theological reflections. And, you know, we're not attributing these to Taylor Swift. I, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't think she, I don't think we, we share a lot of um, convictions ultimately she and I, but uh, but we can we can we're talking about similar things and we can point to those similar things and then in light of that of light, in light of that being we could have a conversation you know and exactly please God it would be spiritually fruitful. Yeah, people tell you what they want, and um, it's commonly in confused and, and thrashing ways. But what it ultimately is is people ultimately want God, and uh, some people see all the way out in this beatific vision that this is indeed the object of my desire. And some people are closer to being entirely caved in on oneself and can only only look inwardly. You know, the in, it was it's the caving in of sin from 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 uh, you know Augustine, mm -hmm. and you know people who who are looking out to God and are kind of seeing these uh, these goods that aren't quite there on the hierarchy of goodness do tell us that they're surging at least somewhat in the right direction. 
And uh, that can be a that can be a means of grace if we if we strengthen that. For instance, we have Taylor talking about her desire for love of other people, her desire her desire for community, her desire for vindication. Like those are all threads that we can we can pull on to help draw people towards ultimately God, because what they want is happiness, and that's what Aquinas affirms that, that yeah. the end is. Absolutely, and it's what she, it's what she absolutely it's what she wants. It's stunning. I was uh, the kind of research that one would do to write an article on uh, Taylor, like a little essay on on a Taylor Swift music is is interesting because it entails basically things I don't normally do, which is watching YouTube videos about Taylor Swift and like breaking down. <laughs> um, but in one interview uh, that was a, a couple years a couple years old um, on maybe ABC or something like that, uh, Good Morning America, I think it was. She said uh, she was the interviewer asked her about what she might do like 20 or 30 years from now. And she just said, I go into a panic freak out attack when I think about basically when I do, when I zoom out too much, mm. if I think about more than I, basically I can do six months ahead, which is when I have my next, my, like my next tour, my next shows. But beyond that, um, I go into a, she, she said a, a panic spiral. And I just thought, you know, I mean, of course there's living in the present moment, but this can be in two ways, right? Like the Christian Hodier, the Christian today, the Christian living in the now, is someone who's so rooted in the eternal things that you see that you are held, you're suspended in being by God's loving providence. And so you can attend to the present moment with a real kind of serenity. But someone who, there's another kind of living in the present moment, which is you're at the behest of the whims of the present moment and you're afraid to actually abstract. Um, and, I, and I think people who, I mean, if you haven't, why are people so anxious today? Why are people struggling, uh, especially with depression and, and mental health and the like? It's that we're so at, we're so at the behest of the present moment with like, you know, the whims at the and at the whims of technology, of TikTok, of latest notification, of of the kind of dopamine rushes that all these things give us and their demands for our attention, <clears throat> and such that actually abstracting or um, or withdrawing from those things is a is a, a fearful thing, a foreign a foreign experience, in fact, but a necessary one. Yeah, all I add to that is, you know, Taylor, of course, tells us that the only type of girls they see is a one night or a wife. And that describes that that really describes yeah. our, our yeah. present culture right now, that people are given all these false dilemmas. Do you want to just be an object? Do you just want to be somebody with which other people transact? Or is this full scale romantic involvement? Um, there's because we deny that there's anything in between. And what we're denying chiefly is friendship. And when what, what you're talking about here, when we're putting it in the subject of, of, of Thomistic thought, you are at the Dominican House of Studies. We're, we're not meant to find the truth alone. No. You know, God says, come, let us reason together. That is with God, but it's also inside of his body. That's with others. That's in community. Um, if it was just us and us alone, boy, would we be lost? So that's that's an attack the culture directly puts against our ability to be truth seekers, is our ability to be social creatures such that Absolutely. we can help each other limp towards the truth. Yeah, well, and that's a wonderful pivot to a um, this, what I would call the second example of St. Thomas's, just conc of many, but second example, helpful example of St. Thomas's integration of, uh, of, well, the practical and the speculative and, and the subjective side of man, which is his treatment of a... Um, we might call an under understudied or uh, yeah under under considered virtue, which is that of eutropelia. I was trying to transfer that one. I, I was Amen. I was doing my best. That was my best. No, you hit it. You hit it. Yeah, you hit it. Um, so I mean, yeah, eutropelia un, under uh, yeah underknown, underappreciated. But um, if you're interested in learning more about it, in fact, the Dominican little plug here: the uh, Dominican Student Brothers at the House of Studies. We publish an annual journal <clears throat> called Dominicana, uh, the online version of which is released. Um, format twice a week so that's where this the taylor swift essay at least uh ran but the print edition which comes out annually is on a question or a topic or a theme in um culture philosophy theology and the most re our most recent issue the, the 2022 issue which came out last december uh, is on the virtue of eutropelia which is what is i've mentioned this word this obscure greek word like four or five times now what is it um well literally it means turning well you trepo if you know you're greek uh, but Aristotle speaks of it in his Nicomachean Ethics, um, Book 4, Chapter 8, uh, when he's treating of various kinds of virtues. And it's really the virtue of recreating well, of being, of having good humor, of putting, of turning well, we could say putting a positive turn or a delightful turn on conversation. And it stands in between 
the buffoon who is kind of constantly laughing or um, constantly recreating, making a joke out of anything and everything. And so is irksome to common social life um, because he can never attend, attain to the more serious affairs or the bore who is just like outright serious, rigid, wooden, and, you know, can't have a laugh. Um, so, you know, and we have, we both, we all know people who fall on different sides of, uh, of the spectrum, but the eutropelic man, the eutropeliac is the, uh, is the master of the master of play, um, which is to say he knows how to play in the right measure at the right time in the right respect. And we thought that this would be a useful thing to reflect upon because, well, gosh, there are so many, just so, so many distractions, so many things, so many preoccupations, so many <laughs> diversions um, that, yeah, that grab or demand, seek our attention. And how does, how does one attain or uh, relate to those? Um, how does one navigate those in a, you know, virtuous and then even more supernaturally speaking in a, in a, in a Christian way? And so this was the this was the task of the journal. Mm, you know, when you see, oh, uh, kittens play, you know, they're not old enough and big enough to hunt, but all their play is around hunting. Mm. You see, you see any animal play, and its play is a tiny model of what it'll do as work. You could say, uh, yeah. once it's an adult, you see people do that. All the ways that we play are surrounding the ways that we're going to work later. You give a little boy a a, a little dump truck and a little bulldozer and he's going to be pretending to be a civil engineer <laughs> absolutely he's making the sound effects and he's moving that thing around moving dirt like like never before totally and it's a way yeah. that we can learn and we can learn at incredibly high speed and with precision and with joy yeah it's a way that we make ourselves fit for a future environment that we're not yet fit for and when we talk about it you know, I think it's Aquinas who relates worship, relates the mass, relates that to a type of play because it's done for its own sake. And yeah. there's a sense in which it is done for its own sake. But I'm going to kind of add to that or, or nuance that saying um, that ultimately goes to the worship that we have in eternal life, also done for its own sake. But what we're doing here is preparing. It's moving our souls to love the good as a matter of habit. And uh, the play that we do through worship, through right recreation, through eutropelia, all of that is preparing us ultimately for heaven, or it ought to be. Completely, completely. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, um, this virtue, because it, it touches so deeply on our, on our bodiliness and on the fact that, you know, in man is a microcosm of the matter and the form or matter and spirit that, of which all of created being consists. Um, and that's to say that we we need to play like we need recreation because we're not angels and we can't we can't just contemplate all the time like contemplation doing metaphysics abstraction first whether first degree second degree third degree whatever it's it's laborious work it's hard and we get tired we get tired because it demands a lot on our when the intellect's operating at a high level it demands a lot on our senses and our on you know the, the interior senses particularly and so what does um what does like it's like yeah, the draw, the intellect draw on our body is immense. So when we get tired, you know, when you're falling asleep at your desk and trying to read a book, well, oftentimes maybe you need sleep. Okay, true. But also sometimes you just need a break. You know, sometimes you need to chat with somebody or just do do something recreative. And that's where um, thinking about eutropelia, not just in the sense of conversation or jokes or, or you know, entertainment uh, in, a, in a kind of narrow sense, um, but thinking of it much more broadly of what in my life, what, what kind of hobbies do I take up and why do I choose these hobbies and how, how do these hobbies contribute to, if we think about John Paul II as a profoundly integrated man, how do these, how do these ho uh, hobbies that I have contribute to my integration as a human person? Not just being a Renaissance man or, you know, he's, he's really well-rounded, but as someone who's, who's truly, who's truly virtuous, who's attaining to the full stature of Christ. Um, and that's, and that's where I think we just have to think very seriously, like as a culture of, okay, how, like, when you're, when you're a parent of young children, how invested are you in your child's athletic career? You know, are you, are you living vicariously through your children's athletic pursuits? Or is this really just about, you know, cultivating uh, a kind of athletic, you know, excellence, but really because it's dispositive to, to virtue um, as sports or as the arts and so forth can be. And, um, and I mean, of course, these things can go, can go so awry and often they do. Um, and, you know, we see that in inverted priorities in families, in schools, high schools, colleges, and uh, well, in the culture more broadly. 
So I think that this is probably, uh, I know you have, um, you have, uh, what noon prayers coming up. So we should probably start wrapping some things up. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think we, we made a fairly large amount of Taylor Swift references, maybe even more than the listeners would have expected. Um, yeah, more than, more than I expected, I have to say, but I'm pleased. Oh, awesome. All right. All right. So I'm going to drop one more and that's, Good. um, yeah, I don't know if I can fit it in, but she says that I in blank space that uh, you love the players and I love the game. Um, I'm going to disagree with her a little bit and say that we should love both players and the game. And um, that game is something that we're we're participating in now in Utrepelia, the, the this play, this worship, this right recreation. We can see part of life as a game and enjoy it as such, um, because a game is something that's set up ultimately so that we will enjoy it. And I think that God set up the universe, in a sense, as a game, so that we would enjoy it. And enjoyment can look different in a variety of contexts. Aquinas says that Christ's greatest joy is actually at the cross. Yeah. Um, but that but that's... Of, well, I just said that, that fits in That fits in perfectly with the, the, the what we were talking about earlier with the Father's image of, of God playing a joke on the devil from the cross. Hmm. Um, actually, I mean, one of the one of the brothers in the journal <laughs> took up this question of just God's the playfulness of God uh, revealed to us in in Christ in in uh, in the dynamic of salvation, which is, I mean, exactly what you just articulated. Yeah, we we are commonly in despair, but God, I think there's a psalm that says that God God either laughs at sin or God laughs. I don't know. I should know my psalms better. Well, I mean, but like, how many times do we say, "Oh, God has a quite a sense of humor," you know? Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. we say that colloquially, sometimes it can seem like a cliche, but if we actually think, what do we mean by that? Well, I mean, we mean that in God and his providence and predestination, there are no mistakes. Um, right. But that also he he's able he's able to invert like our most kind of foolish or, or um, yeah, kind of pathetic things uh, onto working for our salvation because he knows better. And that that like the remind the remind like the facing that kind of contradiction, you know, like the human attempt to control all things. Um, and to fail to face your finitude, the, the, the determinedness of, of a human existence, um, mash with God's actual sovereignty over all, wise and loving sovereignty over all things, um, yields to, yeah, we could say humorous, humorous contradictions, which amount to our, our benefit. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up there. I really enjoyed the chat. That was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, thanks for, thanks for the invitation. You are, of course, invited back whenever you jolly well please. And that pretty much goes for all Dominicans, um, most religious orders, not you Jesuits. Anyways, um, <laughs> you guys are always welcome on. I appreciate the Thomistic insights. Um, I've been contemplating doing a series on the, con- and the Summa Contra Gentiles. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, so we are big fans of Thomas over here. Uh, I was introduced to him through the Dominicans. So, yeah, big fans. What I'd love to do, and uh, I don't know if anybody else is out there doing it, is finding where he explains further the five ways, but find it in the Summa Contra Gentiles, where he seems to go more in depth, because what we have there are just like really quick summaries. And I think what a lot of people want to hear is it right from Aquinas himself. Mm, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in terms of quick summaries, the Timistic Institute right now is doing a helpful YouTube series on the five ways and on their probative nature like in what way are they oh cool so if you're you know if you're on the youtubes um which most people are these days in one respect or another uh yeah you can look at you can look this up aquinas 101 the the five ways and the number of our number of the professors the priors who teach here um there's several videos on each way breaking down what the argument is and how it's probative awesome the listeners will know that i would encourage them to look into the fourth way because that is far and away my favorite um absolutely formal cause where uh where else can they uh can people find what you're doing well uh so certainly uh dominicana blog if you're interested in whether taylor swift is a thomist there's also <laughs> a uh a, the, the, that's really the sequel to a prequel or the the og which was is tom brady a thomist and the um, answer for both is not yet well y- yeah n- yes but not yet exactly right. <laughs> exactly right it's it's, it's the both and the uh the both end but but um this is that's a response to what Tom Brady once said in an interview after his third Super Bowl ring, um, you know, gosh, I've won. He's like 27 years old. He's like, gosh, I've won three Super Bowl. He, you know, he goes, he goes, God, I've won three Super Bowl rings. Like, what more could there be? And if he's Ooh. using God, it's just kind of a, you know, uh-huh. a sort of, um, 
throwaway. But I mean, the answer, of course, is in his very question. Sure. Uh, and so, exactly. I, so, I so, yeah, that, so, that, so that essay, that essay um, draws out Thomas's teaching on beatitude and the eight kinds of things and or the seven kinds of things, creative things in which we try to find happiness, you know, wealth, honors, glory, power, pleasure, uh, human, various other human goods, and then uh, any created spiritual good. No. And then ultimately, okay, what is it? God, the eternal and created good. So, um, and, and that's what Tom Brady ultimately knows he wants. Please God. Awesome. So yeah, you can find, so there, and then, and then I would, uh, yeah, I mean, Dominicana journal, Eutropelia, that was, a, it was appropriately fun to produce. And, um, you know, we had, there's reflections on that. If you've ever, if interested in the, in the movement, the 19th century movement called muscular Christianity, it's a juicy title. Uh, there's a good. great, there's a great article on that. If you're familiar with Alex Honnold and his efforts at scale and successful effort at scaling El Capitan without in a free soul, without any ropes. And whether that can be called eutropelic, there's a there's a take there's a review of a book on that. Um, so yeah, I think we thought it was a we hope at least it's a it's a successful effort to well integrate the speculative and the practical for the, for the good of souls. Awesome. Well, thanks for all that uh, you guys are working working on, and uh, pass my thanks to everybody up at the House of Studies for sure. And I'll remind all my listeners to keep you. And everybody else up there, all priests and bishops, deacons, and of course, our Pope, all in prayer. Amen. Thank you. God bless. Thanks. You too. Bye.